It's not my fault. He started it. You've heard that before, haven't you? I hear it all the time, but it's usually, she started it. Not my fault. I have two girls. He slaps me, I slap him. Before you know it, we're on the ground, we're tussling, we're tugging, we're fighting, we're hitting, we're screaming. Then mom and dad come in and they pull us apart and they sit us down and say, who started it? They started it, right? The other person started it. Something inside of us does not want to accept our own guilt and our own blame. And when something wrong is done against us, that is when we want to point fingers and we want justice to be done. We want someone to be punished. And that's pretty much the way it still is today, right? We, maybe we don't argue over things that were as petty as they once were, or maybe we do. Uh, or maybe we've got really, we got problems and offenses that are done against us that are far bigger than anything we ever dealt with as children. But the aftermath is often still the same. Wrong has been done and we want to be avenged for that wrong. Is that such a bad thing? Is that such a bad thing? And if we don't get the justice that we want, if the evil's done against us, they're left unchecked, well, then, then we want to punish them ourselves. And if we don't punish them ourselves, then we often will lash out at anyone who is available so that others feel our pain and our voices are heard. But here's the thing. If we choose to walk down that path, then what we're actually doing is exposing our lack of understanding and our lack of faith in who God is and how he interacts with his creation. What we ultimately end up doing is not establishing victory for ourselves, but we just create more victims. This morning, we want to consider what it looks like to be a victim and what it takes to go from victim to victory. Jacob's family had plenty of victims, victims everywhere you turned, and at least 10 of them felt it deeply. Remember, the sons of Leah and the sons of, of Jacob's concubines, they were the ones who were passed over. They were, they were not loved the way one of the sons was loved, and that son was Joseph, the son of Jacob's wife, Rachel. We read Last week that Jacob loved Joseph. He loved him deeply. He loved him more than any of his other children. And we also learned that he had given him this impressive gift, this coat of many colors, this coat that was far more than just a fancy piece of outerwear that was going to protect him from the elements. No, this coat was a status symbol. It communicated something to the rest of Joseph's, or Joseph's family. It communicated that Joseph was special. And it probably also carried with it the sense that Joseph is going to be the one who's going to, in to inherit the lion's share of his father's fortune. In the eyes of the ten older brothers, this just wasn't right. Wrong had been done. Why, why should Joseph get all the good stuff? 
Why should he get the special privileges? Oh, little Joseph. Oh, little precious Joseph. How come he gets all of dad's attention? It's not hard to imagine how those brotherly conversations must have gone. Not hard to imagine the pain of being passed over, of feeling second class, even maybe feeling a stranger in your own home. Yes, Jacob's family had victims. Have you ever been a victim? Of course you have. How were you wronged? What what was it that was done? And how long ago was it? Isn't it a funny thing how we can have so many wonderful things that happen in our lives and so many positive experiences, so many people that bless us, but it's often the hurtful things that stick. It's often those things that just keep coming back to us over and over and over again. And those are the really difficult things to loose our grip on and let go of. There are some people that have hurt me, not here, but years ago there are people who have hurt me. And just the mention of their name, it stirs like these raw feelings inside. And I have to deal with that once again. How do you respond when you think of those who have victimized you? Jacob's older brothers, they had good reason to resent him, but their anger toward him, it was brought to a boiling point when he shared some things with him. You remember? He shared two dreams with them. They had already felt slighted, but now that they found out that Joseph believed that one day they're going to bow before their younger brother, well, they were just infuriated. And it seems like they were just waiting for the day, just waiting for that right moment when they could get back at Joseph. And maybe as they get back at Joseph, maybe we're going to get back at dad too. They would make a desperate move and they would exchange, in their minds, I believe, exchange victimhood. We're not going to be victims any longer. We are going to be victors. The opportunity came in Genesis 37. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So Jacob's brothers, they were out pasturing the flock. Now, it it wasn't always the case that you could pasture your flock in close vicinity to your home. Sometimes you have to travel really far away, miles and miles away. In this case, they traveled some 50 miles north of their home in Hebron. And their father had right to be concerned about them. He should have been. Because not only were they far away from home, they were actually pasturing their flocks in a potentially dangerous place. Do you remember what happened at Shechem? Do you remember what Simeon and Levi did to the people of Shechem? How they wiped out all of the men. How they took the women and children. How they pillaged. How they plundered. The Shechemites had been victimized. Who was to say what these people were now going to do when they saw the faces of Jacob's sons? So Jacob, he sends Joseph. 
I got to ask, why would he send Joseph? Why would he send his most loved, his most precious son out 50 miles away to go check on his older brothers? Doesn't that seem reckless? Doesn't that seem too dangerous? And don't they know that these older brothers aren't the biggest fans of Joseph? Apparently not. There's no sign that either Jacob or Joseph have any clue as to what was really going on in the older brothers' heads. They must have hidden their hatred pretty well. So Jacob goes. And then about five days later, because it was about five days away, Joseph arrives in Shechem. But his brothers were nowhere to be found. Verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So here we are. After having spoken with a stranger, Joseph now sets out for Dothan, some 14 miles further away. Now we're 64 miles away from home. In a distance like that, I imagine those brothers, knowing how far they were away from home, knowing how, how long it would take for another representative of, of, of their family to come out and check on them, they feel like they have plenty of space to do what they want to do, plenty of privacy to act. Apparently, far from their minds was the idea that God was watching them wherever they went, either they didn't, they didn't know about it. it doesn't, we don't know whether or not they shared their father's faith. Either they didn't know about it or they, they just didn't care. Or maybe they thought, you know what? God will be fine with this. We are justified. We're totally justified in doing what we're going to do. After all, it's Jacob's fault. We didn't want it to be like this. He just had to go on dreaming those dreams and being special. Really, he brought this on himself. It's possible that they reason that way. But it doesn't make it right, does it? Last week we talked about how the actions of others, they cannot be used as a justification for our own actions to act out. You can't do that because the real blame always lies on the inside of us. It lies with deep down in our hearts, in the desires of of our hearts that tell us we need to respond in a certain way. You can't rightly say, someone else made me do something. No, it's the desires of your own heart. You're accountable for your thoughts. You're accountable for your words. You're accountable for your actions. And that's one of the problems with embracing the victim mentality. We've been wronged by others. And there's no denial of that. We could all raise our hands and say, let me tell you how I have been wronged. And some of us, we would just go, oh my goodness, wow. But then we want to take it further and we want to use those wrongs as an excuse to wrong others as well. We've all had those wrongs done against us. Some of those wrongs, like we said, have been monstrous. And we need to make sure... Just as a side note, we have to make sure that we never do, we never say anything to minimize those wrongs or excuse them away, those sins of the past. On the contrary, what we need to do is we need to own up to them. 
We need to take responsibility for them. We need to do our part to make up for them. We're living in a world, as we've said time and time again in the service so far, we're living in a world that is feeling the crushing weight of pain that is the result of human sin. It's hurting. People are anguishing. People have been victimized by the hands of others. And just like the cries of God's people who were victims in the land of Egypt, remember? Their cries were heard by their God. Cries of others need to be heard. The pain of others needs to be heard. And you know, they need love. They need hope. They need restoration. But at the same time, those of us who have been victimized, we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard that we don't allow the hurt that has been done to us to turn into an excuse to hurt others. 64 miles away from home, that's what happened to Jacob's, uh, Joseph's brothers. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Last week we said, sin begets sin begets sin. It creates this cycle, doesn't it? An, an almost endless chain where victims beget more victims. Pain experienced results in pain inflicted. And if we can't punish those for those that have caused us to suffer, then we want others to get a taste of it. We want others to understand the suffering that we've endured. Maybe you didn't have anything to do with the pain that I am feeling, but I'm going to hurt you so that you know how it feels and so that everybody hears my voice. Our hearts lead us to believe that this will bring us some type of solace. It'll bring us some type of peace, but the reality is it just creates more victims, more pain, more people with reason to hate. When I lash out at my wife and my children because I had a hard day at work, I'm creating victims. When I go on and uh, into, into, out into the world, leaving my home where I have been hurt or maybe mistreated or maybe uh, disrespected, and I take it out on those I come in contact with at work or at the grocery store or at, the, at, the, at school, wherever I am, I'm creating victims. If somebody hurts me and I retaliate against them, I'm creating more victims. And that's exactly what we see happen here in Genesis 37. We've got the older brothers of Jacob who felt jealousy. Rightly so. They felt anger. It's hard to blame them for that. And now they're ready to retaliate. When the opportunity was right, Joseph's brothers, they huddled together and said, let's kill him. Let's throw him into a pit. Let's say a wild animal got him. Nine brothers are ready to unleash fury and ready to murder their brother. And that's when the oldest steps in. He steps in. Verse 22. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then there's a note that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. That was Reuben's intentions. i got to stop this somehow. Why would Reuben do that? 
Reuben was wronged as well. Well, maybe it was because Reuben was already kind of raw from the disappointment that he had caused his father. Remember his affair with Billa, his father's concubine? Or maybe it was because he knew that being the oldest, he was going to bear the lion's share of the responsibility for this. If Joseph gets killed by the brothers, well, dad's looking to me. Regardless, Reuben wanted it stopped. He was hoping that he could somehow undermine their plans when they weren't looking. The nine, they agreed to this plan. Verse 23 says this, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. This must have been an ugly scene. So ugly. One commentator compares it to a pack of wild dogs descending and ripping apart their victim, tearing him to shreds. They ripped off his coat. They probably ripped off other clothes as well. Why not? (laughs) He should endure some shame here. Imagine the kicking. Imagine the, the screaming, the laughing, the crying. Genesis 42, 21, much later on, tells us that Joseph begged. He begged, but they didn't listen. His cries for mercy, those cries would later come to haunt his brothers. But in the heat of the moment, in their bloodthirsty, frenzied state, there was no turning back. We're doing this. Let's go. The victims have now become the victimizers. The sufferers had harnessed their suffering and turned it into a weapon against another. I'm sure that in that moment they thought, you know what? We're back on top. We're going to get some respect, the respect we deserve now. They'd been losing on the losing end before, but now we're winning. And I'm sure at least one of them looked down into the darkness of that pit and said, who's bowing now? This was an awful, disgusting affair. And you know, if I'm honest with myself, I have to recognize that the same heart motivations are right here. Yeah, I can point the finger all I want, but I know that in my own hurt, I've wounded others as well. I've contributed to that same cycle. I've been a part of the problem. Have you been there? Verse 25 tells us right after they finished with Joseph, they sat down and had a meal. (laughs) Apparently, after terrorizing others, you've got quite an appetite. How cold their hearts must have been to sit back and enjoy a meal serenaded by the pleas of their brother. Cold, callous, unfeeling, That's the way human hearts can be when they have become so convinced of their victimhood and that it must be avenged. Then a new opportunity presents itself. Not only could they get rid of the brother that they so hated, but you know what? They could actually make some money off of this as well. Some traders came by. Verse 25, they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, hold on, guys. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. What a horrible, grotesque picture this is. And yet even here, even in this terrible, sordid ordeal, we see our hidden hero working behind the scenes, protecting and bringing about his plan. Fast forward many years later. This place, Dothan, where they're at, that would be a place where God's sovereign hand uh, would, would once again bring about his will. In 2 Kings 6, the prophet Elijah, he finds himself surrounded with his servant, surrounded by the armies of Syria. There are horses, there are chariots, there are spears, there are swords. The sight must have been absolutely terrifying. The, youngest, the young servant who was by his side was, was just freaked out. And that's when Elisha prays to God and he says, Lord, open, open his eyes so he can see. And, and listen to this, verse 17, 2 Kings six seventeen. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In a moment... That fearful servant, he came to see that God was there the whole time protecting him. And that same kind of thing, that same reality, God's presence, it was there when Joseph was thrown into the pit and when he was sold into slavery. The veil, it was still over Joseph's eyes. He didn't know what God was doing. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know that there were armies protecting him even now. But that didn't mean that God wasn't there and God wasn't sovereignly working, orchestrating everything to happen just so. We don't know what motivated Judah to, to, to come up and say, hey, let's sell him. Maybe it was money. Maybe he was starting to feel guilty and just said, hey, here's an easy way to get rid of him. Maybe he'll be okay. At least they'll take care of him. At least he'll live rather than starve to death. And we don't know what was going through his mind. But even as he suggested that, God was using Judah to protect his brother. And not only protect him, but actually move him to a place where he would later be in a position to save the people of Israel, and protect the way for the Messiah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Have you ever been a victim? Maybe you've had your property damaged. Maybe it's been stolen. Maybe your good name was dragged through the mud. Or maybe you've been falsely accused. Or maybe your freedoms have been taken away and you felt like your rights were infringed upon. Or maybe you've been physically or emotionally or even spiritually abused. It's often in moments like that where God feels very, very distant. So far away. Sovereign hand, it feels like it is nowhere to be found. And all we can think about is the terror of the moment. We're angry, we're bitter, we're broken, we're confused, we're crushed. But could it be 
that even that even in those moments, even in our victimization, that he's still working out his good plan. Could it be? I think that's one of the reasons Paul said what he said in Philippians 4. Remember? I've learned in whatever situation, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Paul knew that in the seasons of suffering, in the seasons of plenty, God was not only there, but he was giving him all the time everything that he needed to make it through. It's just like that, that ladder. Remember the ladder that Jacob dreamed of, that revelation that God gave him that let Jacob know, I'm with you. I am with you and I am caring for you. I am ever-present. You have an ever-present connection with God. God was there. God was there when Joseph's ten older brothers, when they felt the sting of their father's favoritism. And God was there when they carried out that sinister plan of theirs. God was there when Joseph was brutally attacked and thoughtlessly sold into slavery. God was there. And he's there in the midst of our pain and our suffering as well. The question is, do we recognize his presence? Do we recognize it? In the rest of our passage, Reuben would return to find out he was too late. The deed had been done. Joseph was gone. He was sold. A bloody coat that would be given to their father, Jacob. He'd believe that his, his precious boy was slaughtered by a wild animal, and then that would send him spiraling into an unconsolable state of mourning. But God would make sure that Joseph landed exactly where he wanted him. Verse 36 reads, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And we'll read about that next week. Question for us this morning. How do we move from victim to victory? How do we do that? Well, there's one path that so many people instinctively take. They embrace their victimhood. They let it fester inside. They begin to look for opportunities to get restitution and make others feel their pain. That's the path Joseph's brothers went down. The victory that they thought they had achieved it ended up just creating another victim and blistering their own consciences. The other path is the one Joseph walks down. One, one pastor wrote this. This is good. Listen to this. Joseph had ample reason for self-pity, rage, anger with God, and revenge. He had immense reasons to become enslaved to victimhood. He had been relationally crippled by his father's overweening favoritism. He had suffered from the yours, mine, and ours relational pathology of polygamy. He had been monstrously abused by his brothers. The scars were there to stay. Their homicidal rage, his beating and humiliation, their demeaning, piercing epithets, an agonizing trip uh, to Egypt, and his naked humiliation on the slave block in Egypt. What an opportunity for enslavement to victimhood. If anyone had reason to embrace victimhood, it was Joseph. 
But rather than be enslaved to that victimhood, rather than allowing it to consume him, to embitter him, to fill him with anger, lead him to seek vengeance on others, his faith in God delivered him from victim to victory. How did he do it? What was the secret of his success? He had faith in God. Faith in God. We know he had faith in God. Why? Because of the end of the story. Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It was Joseph's faith that lifted him up out of that destructive cycle of victimhood and out into victory. Well, why is that? What is it about faith, faith in God? What is it that's so transformational about that? Let me give you 10 quick ways. Faith in God, number one, brings confidence that he's in control. He's in control. It reminds us that while the world seems like it's spinning out of control, he remains absolutely in control. Even in the madness of the present, we can trust that he knows what he's doing. We believe him when he says, as I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand, Isaiah 14. Secondly, faith in God exchanges a temporal perspective for one that is eternal. As you and I wrestle through life, as we live day to day with with sorrows of the past and those wounds, and even as we endure the fresh wounds, because they don't stop, right? They keep coming every day. Maybe you've been wounded today. We know that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal three faith in god it reminds us that he has a plan not only is he in control he has a plan it reminds us that the present suffering that we're enduring actually has some type of purpose behind it in god's bigger plan just as christ's suffering wasn't wasted neither will the suffering of those who are called according to his purpose we may not understand in the moment there is no doubt in my mind that joseph didn't have a clue what god was doing but one day We'll know. And we'll say, God be praised. Here we go. Number four. Faith in God allows us to trust Him for justice. Allows us to trust Him for justice. Allows us to let go of our need for vengeance and trust that He'll one day bring everyone and everything to justice. If the person, if the, the person who hurts you is a fellow believer, this is, this is something we need to remember. If someone hurts you and they're a fellow believer and their hope and their faith is in God, well then you can rest assured that their justice, the justice that they deserve, it's already been carried out. Only they're not going to experience it because it was carried out on Christ. Just like your, your guilt was taken care of theirs, of there, so was his. And if they don't have the hope of Christ... If someone hurts you and they don't trust Christ, well, we need to pray for them. We need to pity them. Because unless something changes, then they're going to face one day the full force of God's judgment and it's going to last for an eternity. 
Number five, faith in God reminds us, it reminds us that we don't deserve His grace. We don't deserve it. It brings us to that sobering understanding that, that we're all undeserving of God's goodness. Even the sufferings, even in the wrongs that we endured, and some of us have endured some doozies, right? We're still not exp experiencing the punishment that we deserve. And if I have the hope in Christ, I know my sins are forgiven, that I have a place in eternity that's being prepared for me, and I have reason for great joy because of the hope I have in Christ. I don't deserve his grace. Number six, faith in God teaches us that, he's, that he uses suffering to shape us. He shapes us through it. Suffering is one of the ways that he brings us closer to himself and transforms us into people who look more and more like he desires us to look, like Jesus Christ. Count it all joy, James says, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces various kinds of Christ-like character qualities, right? Number seven, faith in God tells us tells us that God sent his son to be victimized for us. He himself bore, his, bore, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his victimization, you and I have been healed. And if our Savior was victimized on our behalf, if he suffered on our behalf, that shouldn't we be willing to suffer for His glory? Number eight, faith in God, it tells us we're not alone. Not alone. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. It tells us that God is present with us, that He cares for us in our sufferings, that He mourns with us in our pain, that He sympathizes with us when we're taken advantage of, and best of all, that He will redeem our scars. He will redeem our scars so that they will one day become shining testimonies of the victory He has won. Isn't that good? It's good. You and I are not alone in our sufferings. Your tears are seen. Your cries are heard. The wounds that you carry deep down inside, they are known by the One who makes beauty from ashes. Don't despair. Number nine, faith in God tells us that reward is coming, that this life that we have right now, you may be dealing with, with effects of something that happened years ago, something that you were not responsible for, something that was done to you, and it was awful, and you're still, you're living with the pain, you're living with the suffering, but this life isn't it. Thank the Lord this isn't it. There's so much more. For those who have our trust in Him, who've, who've laid down our weapons of, of rebellion and have surrendered to the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, they're stored up for us an eternity in the good, safe, spectacular presence of our Savior. What an awesome thing it is to be able to say with Paul, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Is that where your sights are? That's where we're headed if our faith is in God. Finally, faith in God, it transforms acts of violence 
into witness opportunities. It transforms every false accusation, every slanderous word that was spoken against us, every social injustice that we endured, every opportunity that we're denied, prejudice we endured, hateful posts that goes up on social media. It turns all of that into an opportunity to represent Christ and point others to the glorious hope that is only found in Him. Remaining faithful and holding fast to our faith in God, it's one of the most powerful ways that we let the light of Christ shine. Shine before others. Why? So that they might recognize Him and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's how faith in God enables victims to transform into victors. Is your faith in God? Let me just read one more passage. The incredible words of Romans 8.31, written to those who trust in God. What What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or virus, or whatever, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Have you been wounded? Have you been mistreated, taken advantage of? Have you been abused? Many of us have been. Do you consider yourself a victim? There's hope for you. There's victory. And it's not found in resentment or revenge. It's found in recognition and reliance on the one who loves you and gave himself for you. It's found in God. It's found in God. Would you turn to Him? Would you trust Him? Would you let go of victimhood and allow Him to transform it into glorious victory? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You so much. You are spectacular, Lord. All of us, all of us are fully deserving of the worst. Lord, we, we sinned against You. We created victims. We victimized ourselves. We victimized others. We created this pet, perpetual cycle. And the world is a mess. And Lord, even before the beginning, You had a plan to redeem it all. To turn victims into victors. And You did it through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are in awe of who You are. We worship You. We praise You. Lord, we want to surrender to You. 
And Lord, for those who are maybe listening to this online or here in this room who are struggling to let go, they're struggling with pain that is very real, with hurts that are very, very wrong. They need you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that they would lay those burdens at your feet and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm broken without you. Wash me clean. Forgive me of the wrongs I have done, the victims that I have created. Make me yours. And Lord, heal me because there are hurts inside that I do not know how to get rid of. Heal me, Lord, as only you can and transform them into things that will glorify you and produce good for others. We love you. Lord, thank you for these people in this room who I know most of them have their trust in you. Would you encourage them? Would you uplift them? Would you uphold them? Would you prepare them for the work that you have to do through them, through their pain, through their suffering, through whatever they experience this week, Lord. May the light of, sh of Christ shine through powerfully, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.